we can be encouraged in our doubts and our unbelief. And then we can see how to respond correctly to the risen Lord. Let's pray. Okay, let's see. We can come to God and say, God, help us pay attention to your word this morning. Let's go to God. Heavenly Father, you know us better than truthfully anyone else because you made us. You know our thoughts. You know our doubts. You know what we're thinking right now and whether we want to hear this message. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to have eyes to see what you're doing here and ears to hear, to pay attention to your word this morning. Help us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Again, welcome. Um, This is not the norm. Um, Usually here um, we go through... uh, kind of uh, the book of Galatians and a whole book of the Bible together. But today we're going to look at a specific passage in the book of John. So outside of the norm of going through a whole book, we're going to to center on this um, passage on John. So I'm going to read it to you now this morning. Let's pay attention as we read God's word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. So as we kind of take an excursus from, uh, from Galatians and look at the book of John, um, I think some people might be curious why this passage on Easter morning, considering it's takes place a week after Easter, and why would you choose to use this passage? Well, I want to use it for two reasons. One is this. The thesis statement of the book of John, kind of the center of what John is trying to prove through all this book of John, is right there in verses 30 through 31. I just read, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which is not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the crux of what John is about. So why would he then, uh, it's not just the resurrection story, why would he put this story of Thomas before that? Why this right there? Because I think it's central It's central to the message of Jesus. Reason two is this is Super Bowl Sunday for Christians, right? This is our big day. This is where we go, yeah, we celebrate, yay, Jesus is risen, this is huge. And 
The truth is, I think it's good to have a message of doubt and uncertainty in our age because it fits our age. We live in an age of skepticism, in an age of doubt, in an age where we like to tear down things rather than build them up, where we take institutions like school or church or whatever it might be, and it is fun to just throw lobs at it rather than seeing what it truly is. And I think this message speaks to that kind of culture, a culture of doubt, a culture of skepticism. You might be in that place right now. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time in your life, but you have doubt. Maybe you're wanting the assurance of the message of the cross. Maybe you came this morning curious. Maybe you just got dragged along on Easter morning. But you might have doubt this morning. You might have unbelief. I think Thomas who John Stott calls the patron saint of skepticism, might speak to you this morning. He might say to you, the message of Jesus is rooted in history. It's empirical. It's sensible. It's, you can touch it. You can see it, see it. You can feel it. And Thomas is then speaking to us and saying, I have seen to you people that have not seen, so that you might believe what I have witnessed. I have seen in history, I have seen a man rise from the dead. That has happened. Now believe. You know, John says, I have, a cha- I have had many stories I could tell of what Jesus did. But I've only written selective ones in my book. So why has he chosen this one? And this is what I think we want to find out this morning. So let's see it, shall we? Now, Thomas, he's kind of on the outside. It's kind of weird. Uh, the ten other disciples, of course minus Judas, have seen Jesus in his resurrected body. But for some reason, Thomas didn't. He's the odd man out. It's kind of like your friends going to see a movie, and now they're all talking about the movie in front of you, and they're saying, you've got to see this movie. It's the best movie we have ever seen. And then, of course, you, the skeptic, the one that wants to see the movie for him or herself, says, you know what? I'll say it's the best movie when I've seen the movie. I'll believe it when I see it. But the thing is, I think, I use that analogy, I think it's even harsher for Thomas. He's saying, I will certainly not, I will never believe unless I touch the wounds in his wrists. Or hands is also, it can be hands and wrists in the Greek. And I also see the wound in his side. I have to see that first and I will not believe until I see it. And you know what's even crazier? Thomas has spent three years with these guys. He has slept with them. He has ate with them. He has lived life with them. These are his brothers. And he has also followed Jesus for three years. And he's seen Jesus do some crazy stuff like walk on water. Even in seeing all those things, Thomas 
still does not believe. And I think that's fitting, especially for the book of John. Because Jesus said throughout the book of John, he said, you will see miracles. You will see the things that I do and you still will not believe. And this is why it kind of comes to this point, the story of Thomas, because this is what Jesus has been saying throughout the book of John of who he is. And will Thomas believe that? Will he see it? You know, some of you this morning, um, you know, you might not be at church a long time. You might not even call yourself a Christian, but you might hang around with Christians. And I do ask, why would Thomas still hang out with this crew of people that said this guy rose from the dead? I mean, what's he thinking? These guys are crazy. This did not happen. And some of us here still hang out with Christians, even though these Christians believe that God actually exists. He came in human form on this earth. He lived as a man here. He died on a cross and rose from the dead. You know your family members and your friends believe that. That's crazy. And you still hang out with them? That makes sense. You're friends. That's what we do. That's what Thomas does. He still hangs out with his friends, and that's okay. But do you really realize what your friends believe? They believe that. They believe the only way they are saved. This world will be remade. They believe that stuff. Have you ever asked them about it? Your spouse, a friend, a neighbor? And you Christians here, have you ever talked about it? Have you ever shared with others, you know, I believe this stuff. This crazy stuff. I believe it. And here is what the disciples are saying to their friend Thomas. It's true. It happened. Believe. I hope we would take time to consider these claims. That you would take time to maybe talk about it with friends. Maybe just this morning, take times to consider, did Jesus Christ really exist? Did he really rise from the dead? I had an interesting background growing up. I didn't go to Christian schools or anything like that. I went to public school in a very, very, uh, (laughs) in downtown Madison, Wisconsin. It was not the most Christian environment. I could really pick out a handful of students out of 1,500 students that said they believed in Jesus Christ. And then I went off to college at a, a secular university uh, where also the same kind of thing. We had one Christian group on campus. Um, there were 30 students in the group out of a class of 9,000 people. I'm not saying that there's only 30 Christians on, at, on school, but it, we were few and far between. And I took Bible classes in both high school, public school, and uh, in uh, college. And they were Bible as literature or New Testament kind of stuff. And um, so I really had to investigate the claims of Christ. Because my teachers weren't Christians. And they were trying to look this at, at, at historically. 
And what we found in our dialogue and conversation is that most scholars, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, um, will agree that Jesus did exist. There was a Jesus of Nazareth. And that he did die. We'll just take that as most historians agree, whether they're Christians or not. But where they differ, of course, is um, did he really rise from the dead? And one of the major arguments that is postulated is that these group of disciples, these guys, made it all up. They were great at propaganda. They were great at creating a new religion. And that's what they did. They created a new religion on something that really did not happen. And it just took off. So that is the argument that is made against the resurrection. Now, I want you to hear me, please, this morning. I'm going to make five arguments against that. And I want to prove the resurrection. Okay? That this did happen in history. That it was true. That this idea that it was just made up does not make sense. Okay? First is this. Seven weeks after Christ's resurrection, it's recorded that these disciples went out into Jerusalem to thousands of people that were coming in from all around the world to celebrate in Jerusalem and told them about Jesus being resurrected. And that Jesus, he said, you know, Jesus has appeared to 500 people and they give names of some of the people. And they say, it has happened. These are witnesses to it. Go ask them. Ask them if it's true or not. These are real people living. This is written down of people that have seen this. So there were eyewitnesses. And none of the ruling authorities, no one said, Oh wait, here's Jesus' grave. Here he is, dead. He's not alive. He's buried right here. They did not just go and say, here it is. So their argument would be, well, the disciples stole the body. Well, the first problem with that is, I think it's pretty hard for a bunch of fishermen uh, to take on armed guards. But even if you believe that these fishermen took on the armed guards, um, I don't know what they would have gained by starting their own religion. Especially a religion that claims that your Savior died upon a cross. You see, the audience at that time had an idea of the Messiah as being a king, to rule, to reign over all people. And now you're saying this religion we should follow is one that was crucified and died? Not a really good religion to start. And, you know, in arguing with my professors in college, um, I feel like they think we live in the modern age that back then, um, religion just popped out of nowhere. You know, like nowadays, religions start all the time, right? You can just go online and start your own religion, right? That just didn't happen back then. These were Jewish theists, the disciples. Now, there were different sects, the Essenes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But to say that God came to earth and had a son that died upon the cross and rose from the dead was blasphemy to Judaism. That would have been trouble. That was against the culture. And you see that they locked themselves in the house because they were afraid of this message. And not till the Holy Spirit came on them did they have the power and courage to go out and spread the news of the gospel. 
Why would they start such a religion like that, knowing that it would cause them pain and suffering and martyrdom? Which it did, unless it was true. Well, then the argument makes, well, you know, they just wrote these books a lot after all these things happened. till everything had died down and had quieted. And they suppressed all the debate about whether the resurrection was true or not. I don't know if you know this, but in 1 Corinthians, some of the doxologies that are in 1 Corinthians that talk about the resurrection were actually sung in churches and in gatherings just a few years after Christ was resurrected. And then when Corinthians was written, they took these songs that were sung about the resurrection and put them in the New Testament. This thinking was there from the beginning. And if you argue, well, they just, they just took all the naysayers that didn't really believe in the resurrection and they just put them off to the side. Well, it's not like the early church didn't debate things, right? We've been reading it in Galatians. What did they debate about? Circumcision. If they were making up the things that Jesus said and did, don't you think the disciples would have said, let's have Jesus say something about this debate about circumcision? Let's put that in there so it settles it, so we don't have this debate later. But there is nothing that Jesus says about circumcision. He doesn't say anything there in the Gospels, showing that they didn't just make this thing up. These things actually happened. And then lastly, well, it was just a hallucination. They just, you know, were taking a bad trip. And just seeing Jesus spiritually. Here's the thing about hallucinations. Not that I have been on one. But hallucinations that scientists say. They bring up images that you have seen before. Or thought about. So the images and ideas that um, the Jews had about what resurrection was. Was going up in clouds. It was riding off. It was being just taken right away. It was all the people being resurrected together. That was the image and idea they had of resurrection. It was not an image of an actual body, one person living in the flesh, walking around with them. That was not, that was not even thought of. That wasn't their picture of the resurrection. So it wasn't something that just came to their mind because that's what they thought it was and now we'll write it down. No, it was something contrary to anything they had ever thought of or been taught them before. Do you really believe this? Have you really investigated these claims? That there was Jesus Christ that lived and died and rose from the dead. Why can't, I mean, I made these arguments in class. I tried to be as gracious as I could. But why didn't they believe? Well, Dan, um, Christianity is taken on faith. There is no reason. You're making faith claims. You are just, just believing in something. That's not what we do here at public school. That's not what we do here at the university. Please hear me on this. These are not my ideas. This idea comes from Tim Keller, The Reason for God, a great book. If you are questioning Christianity, it's a great book to read. 
Please hear me. You cannot doubt belief A except from a faith in belief B. Everything is faith. For example, if you doubt Christianity because there can't be just one true religion, which I've heard many times, you must recognize that that statement is in itself an act of faith. No one can prove it empirically. It is not a universal truth that everyone accepts that Christianity, uh, that there can't be just one true religion. In fact, if you went to the Middle East and said there can't just be one true religion, nearly everyone would say, why not? See, the reason you doubt Christianity's belief A, the resurrection, is because you hold unprovable belief B, that there can't be just one true religion. Hear me. Every doubt, therefore, is based on a leap of faith. There is reason. There is proof. There is stuff here. This is amazing. Everyone will say, this is not history, right? They'll try to say, this is not history. Well, I'll take everything else except this book, even though it has some of the greatest evidence of his existence out of some of the greatest literature ever in history. Oh, this can't be history because of the claims it makes. Have you investigated the claims? Is it true? You know, one reason I love Thomas is because for one week, he was like you and me, wasn't he? He didn't see the risen Lord in the flesh. He doubted. Isn't it great? I I can relate to that. I haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. I have doubts at times. Doubts are okay. It is okay to doubt. In fact, the word doubt means two. Like two things. It's to waver between belief and disbelief. And in this story, it wasn't just Thomas that wavered between belief and disbelief, was it? It was also the disciples who had locked themselves in, (laughs) saying, I don't know if I can go out with this message out there. I don't know if I have the power to be able to proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Even they struggled with belief and disbelief. But hear me, there is a difference between doubt and outright skepticism. See, doubt is necessary to know what is really true. The problem is when we are just skeptics and we let our doubt lead to nothing. See, skeptics wrestle, where do my, I want to I challenge the skeptics out there that just say, I just like to question everything. I just like to tear down everything. I don't want to commit to anything. If I have to commit to a church or commit to Christ, I just don't want to do that. I just want to float in life. I want to challenge you this morning. Okay? This is an angry preacher. This is trying to show some compassion here to you skeptics. I am one of them at times. I want you to wrestle with your presuppositions about Christianity. Where do your presuppositions about Christianity lie? And what are the objections, of fi- of, what are the objections that you have? And you that are Christians here, I want you to wrestle with those same ones. And I want you to be able to answer the claims of your friends, of your neighbors, of your family. Be able to do that. 
I love my girls. Uh, they uh, help me uh, wrestle with ideas of apologetics and claiming whether Jesus is true. Caroline and I have good conversations at night at bed. And one thing, when we pray, she says, Dad, I, I, I really don't want to pray. You know, as a pastor, that's like, oh, you know. <laughs> you know, we talk about, why, why don't you want to pray? Because, Daddy, I, I can't see God. I can't see Jesus. A fair argument. And I think we say, oh, if I was in Thomas's position, if I was where he was, and I could really see the wounds, if I could see the physical Jesus, then I would believe. Then I would truly believe in Jesus Christ. Would you? See, even Christ says, they didn't listen to the prophets or to Moses. They will not even be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. After the parting of the Red Sea, after that, they then complained, where are you, God? We are a people that wander from God in his existence. No matter his faithfulness, his love, his creation, all this around, his book that he gives us, the evidence of Christ, we wander from him. You see, God chose a ragtag group of guys because they would take the message even to martyrdom. They would not be ones that are like, oh, you know, show me miracles, show me signs. They were guys that, okay, I followed him, I saw him. I will now proclaim the message. You see, Thomas saw Christ because he was an apostle. And to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Christ. And the apostles were there to proclaim to us through his word, through their message, for things that we do not see, so that we would believe. Thomas is a bridge. A bridge between Christ and us. So that future believers like us would believe things that we do not even see. You know, it's, it's not really fair to call Thomas the doubter. He really doesn't show evidence of doing that earlier in his ministry. It's not really fair to say that. And he gets a bad rap. Because truthfully, he does something that none of the other disciples did. And this is the crux of the book. See, Thomas said something that the disciples did not say, but Jesus said of himself, that he was trying to get the disciples to say. What did he say after putting his hands in his side, his fingers in his wrists? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas finally saw this is God in the flesh. He was the first disciple to admit, to say, this is God. To be assigned to his brothers. To be assigned to us, to who Jesus really is and who Jesus said he was throughout John. I am that I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am God. Will you see that? And finally, one of the disciples says, you are my Lord and you are my God. 
I mean, come on. Why couldn't Thomas not have seen the resurrected Christ? Why couldn't he have just seen his teachings and all the things that he did? Why did he have to see the resurrection, right? I mean, he could have, he could have still been a disciple and not seen those things, right? Please hear me. This is a very important point. If we think the message of Jesus is simply about the teaching of Jesus, then the message of the gospel becomes how we live, how we act, what we do. But if we see the message of Jesus is the resurrection, it no longer becomes about us. It becomes about him. Thomas would say, oh, it's about political power. It's about your moral teachings. It's about following the golden rule. No, he said, it's about a new heaven and a new earth. It's about a new life. It's about conquering the evil of this world. Thomas didn't become a learned man with Jesus' knowledge. He became a changed man with resurrection power. I'm going to say it again. Thomas didn't become a learned man with Jesus' knowledge. He became a changed man with resurrection power. What took a ragtag group of guys to go out and preach to the religious powers of that day? It was the unification with the resurrection of Christ. That is the power of the Holy Spirit that they could come out and say, It is true. It's true. It happened. And we now live in that power. Okay, I'm just going to go off just for a second here. Talk about, Dan, I want to know your position on homosexuality. Who are you going to vote for? You know, what's your view on sexual ethics? You know, what's your view of how we should treat politics or whatever it might be? I want to hear those views before I get into this Christianity thing. You know what I want to say? Truthfully, you're avoiding the more controversial topic. The more controversial topic is there is a God who made you and created you that you are separated from, that came to this earth as flesh and rose from the dead. And you want to question what I view on homosexuality? Come on! That view is crazier than whatever sexual ethic I have. If you believe that, you can believe a lot of other things. <laughs> I read an article by Laura Ferguson, a, a very great writer, young woman. One that is a skeptic. One that wrestles with doubts. And she really put it to the crux of the matter why people doubt and don't believe. She said, we can't abide anyone who knows what is best. We can't abide by anyone who gives what is best. We don't want to abide by anyone who does what is best. And what is best because it illuminates the reality that we are not the best. See, Thomas came face to face with the greatest human problem. And he answered it. You are God. I am not. 
I want to say to you this morning, he is God, you are not. And he has shown himself in his resurrection power. Do you believe that? Because I think that's your number one objection. I'm not giving my life to anyone else. I'm going to live the way I want to. I'm going to do what I want to. This preacher's going to tell me I got to do X and I got to do Y. Take me out of it. You have a God that says, I made you and I created you and I died for you. I love you. I gave my life for you. You should respond by giving your life to me. I love Ricky Gervais. I think he's hilarious. I love the English office. I think it's so good. If you guys don't know, he's pretty crass. Don't show it to the kids, okay? Ricky Gervais. But he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal four years ago. And his article is, Why I Am a Good Christian. And Ricky Gervais is an atheist. And so he did not convert to Christianity. But his argument was saying, he is a good guy. And truthfully, I do better things and I do good things better than the Christians that I see out there. See, those Christians, they don't live up to their own rules. I think this is the major issue that society has with Christianity. They're just kind of talking past Christianity. And Ricky Gervais' article kind of proves it. And I agree with Ricky. I don't live up to what Christianity calls me to do. And truthfully, that's not really the message of Christianity, <laughs> to live up to some moral standard. Lee Strobel, he uh, was an editor for the Chicago Tribune, an atheist. His wife became a Christian, and uh, he, uh, he wanted to investigate. I, I really want to know if this Jesus thing is real. And so he took his investigative journalism skills and did the research. And he responds to Ricky Gervais and he says, I've done the research, Ricky. And I have found that I'm a Christian, not because I'm good. I'm a Christian because what Christ actually did. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. It happened. See, Thomas didn't say, Jesus, you're a good guy. You told me how to live the golden rule. He didn't say to Ricky, Ricky, you know, that's what it's about, Christianity. Just being a good person. No, Thomas responded and said, no. You are not just a good person, Jesus. You are God. And you resurrected from the dead. And no matter how bad I am, how evil I am, how I fall, I fall short, I trust in what you have done for me. And that is the message of the cross. Thomas puts it to us. And now I put it to you. How will you respond to the risen Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we wander. We doubt. We do not believe that you care for us. That you sacrifice for us. We wander from that message. Heavenly Father, show yourself to us. Show yourself to Caroline. Show yourself to people here this morning. Give them the courage to even ask that question of you. 
God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Just pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.